Good morning. Ah, some of you are still awake. I'm sure you're not sleeping. You've just been singing some good truths and uh, you're pondering those and thinking of them and that's important as we come to worship together. For our scripture reading this morning, <clears throat> it's kind of a short one, but it's an important one. <clears throat> and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> I preached on this passage one Sunday uh, on Father's Day. Uh, but I, I know that it, it applies not just to fathers or to men. It applies to all of us who are believers. And this was an exhortation uh, uh, that Paul gave the Corinthians. And you know the struggles that the Corinthians had in their faith uh, throughout the, the chapter, first chapter of Corinthians were introduced to a lot of the struggles that they had. But as he came to the book, he gave this exhortation. He said, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. <clears throat> be men of courage. Be strong. And do everything in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We've We've heard of things even expressed this morning that remind us how important it is for us to be strong in the faith these days. We're in a hostile attitude concerning you and the truth and the gospel and what is right and wrong. And Lord, we, we just thank you that you teach us in your word and give instruction in your word of how we can be strong and stand firm. And so, Lord, as we consider this passage, these few verses today and others in the scripture, guide us by your spirit into the truth. And, Lord, where we need to make changes in our lives, Lord, Show us that very clearly and give us the courage to do so. So we commit this word to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> there are five imperatives in this passage, and uh, uh, I'm going to pick on the men for a while. <clears throat> Because uh, originally when I talked about this, I talked about uh, fathers being real men. But it's not just about fathers and men, it's about every believer being real regarding who they are in Christ. But here's some misconceptions about what real men are. <clears throat> um, the following are slightly slanted examples of things seen on t-shirts that say real men do this. Real men, a real man drinks his coffee black, the stronger the better, like the cowboys in Louis L'Amour novels. 
A real man doesn't go shopping. That's why you can't find a seat in the benches in the malls. Or why you see men sitting for long periods of time under vehicles either snoozing or yawning. A real man is on the green and two on a par five. <laughs> if you're like me, you're sitting there wishing, you're sitting there saying, I wish. A real man doesn't use instruction manuals. He just tears into it until he makes a real mess of it, and then he has to go and read the instructions. A real man doesn't shows off his injuries. <clears throat> he indulges in little minds worse than anybody else's, and then the limp becomes a lot worse, or he winces in excruciating pain. Until he gets out of sight, that is. A real man needs only three things to be successful. Duct tape, WD-40, and a good dog. Now there are other types of men than these, and here's a sample of one real man above, of one the real man above, of, from the above will likely scoff at. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played, he never risked, he never tired, he never sang or prayed. And one, one, when one day he passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. <laughs> it's important today to be standing strong. Eugene Corr was an assistant police chief in Seattle, Washington during a, a dark, dark time of corruption in the department. And this goes back to 1969 when police records revealed payoffs to officers and suspicious political contributions. Corr had no choice but to stand up. He risked his career and even his life when he and two other assistant chiefs demanded that the police chief resign. Some officers loyal to the chief called Cor a snitch, and someone scrawled kill Cor over his parking spot. But Cor refused to back down, though he took a lot of heat for standing up to corruption his efforts paid off. He emerged as a hero to many and was later credited with making the police force in Seattle a more professional and trustworthy force. And I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie about the Rwanda situation that happened <coughs> back in the last century. Paul Roos has a, ba a Paul R, I'll say, I can't pronounce his name. He made quite a name for himself in the hotel business. This courageous man didn't earn that fame for his business work in the hotel, but he heroically risked his life to save the lives of over a thousand people. As his home city of Kigali crumbled around him during the Rwandan genocide back in 1994, he gave refuge to frightened members of the Tutsi tribe in the hotel which he managed. 
Now, have you ever thought about how you'd stand up? If you knew that you had to, and it was going to be a very difficult thing, people are going to hate you, people are going to come against you, they might even threaten your life. Well, as we come to the scripture, we find, we find these kind of exhortations that are given to us, and we're to stand for our faith. We're to stand for our faith today, and that is absolutely necessary in this day where we're facing so many kinds of opposition to what is faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul here, he gives this exhortation as he closes out this first uh, epistle to the Corinthians, and he says, first of all, Be alert, or be on your guard. Watch. And this comes from a word that means to be awake, to be vigilant. Or, figuratively, it means be alive. Be alive. In 1 Corinthians 5.10, where the apostle talks about being awake or asleep, He refers to either being alive or being dead. And it's used a number of times in the New Testament referring to Christians being spiritually awake and alert as opposed to being spiritually indifferent or listless. Now we're we're told to be alert about a number of things in the New Testament. Here are probably the six most important, first of all. (laughs) The most obvious one were to be alert for Satan, for the enemy of our souls. 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Of course, Satan sinned against God, and he was cast out of heaven. He was cast down to hell. I don't want to spend a lot of time glorifying Satan, so I'm going to go through this this quickly, because you know know what I'm saying. He was cast down out of heaven. He was the author of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. He perverts the scriptures. He did that when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted. He perverted the scriptures and... uh, He tempted Christ. Beware of his temptation against yourself. He opposes God's work. (laughs) And there's a picture of that in Zechariah chapter 3. And uh, it says he was standing before God. There's a vision that Zechariah had. And Joshua came before God. And he was dressed in filthy robes. And Satan was there uh, talking against him, accusing him. And, of course, he's the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? That's what he loves to do. I love that picture in Zechariah chapter 3. You need to read it for yourself because it's a beautiful picture of our salvation because God says, stop it up. And I'm paraphrasing here. 
he says, stop it, Satan. And then he says to the angel, put new robes on Joshua. Take off those filthy robes and put new robes. What a beautiful picture of our salvation. And there it is in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. And of course, Satan hinders the gospel. In the parable of the seed and the sower, he comes along and prevents people from hearing the truth. In the end times, he's going to work lying wonders that are going to confuse people and draw them away. And of course, he deceives. <clears throat> he lies and murders. He's the father of lies. He tempts and destroys. He comes as, a, as an angel of light. Beware of Satan. He's alive. I don't, I don't think he's well, but he's alive in this world. And you need to be aware of that. And you need to be alert to his schemes. And he works through people more often than not. Good people, often. In his characteristics, he's presumptuous, he's proud, he's powerful, he's wicked, he's malignant, he's subtle, he's deceitful, he's fierce and cruel. And I like this one. <laughs> he's a coward. Now, why do I say that? Well, look up James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, uh, resist him and he'll flee from you. Resist him, not in your own power, not in your own strength. Resist him in your faith, and he'll flee from you. So we need to resist him. 1 Peter 5 says, be sober, be vigilant, because, because your adversary, the devil, walks about seeking whom he may, or he may devour but resist him. And we need to be armed against him with that. We haven't got the power in ourselves. We haven't got the facility in ourselves to resist him. Uh, but we have the armor of God that we can put on that's talked about in Ephesians 6. And we need to be very alert to his schemes. And when we resist him, one of the greatest motivations for resisting is to know that he's a, he's a defeated foe. He can't win the war. He might win a few battles. But the war's been won. It was the one on the cross, and Christ will come back and finish the job. But the exhortation to the Corinthians and to us is be alert to the efforts of Satan to undermine the truth of God and to deceive us to take a path to destruction. We also need to be alert <coughs> for temptation. Keep alert and pray as what Jesus told Peter, James, and John in Gethsemane 
lest you fall into temptation. He was encouraging them to discern when they were under spiritual attack and not let their self-confidence lull them to sleep spiritually. They were lulled to sleep physically. But when we get self-confident in our own ability to handle temptation, we can fall asleep spiritually and not have the strength to stand up to it. We are weak in the flesh. Our unredeemed body, even though we desire not to sin or practice the righteousness we know God wants us to. And if we're not watching and seeking God's help in prayer and in getting into his word and, 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 and embracing the truths of those, word, those words, we won't be aware of temptation when it comes to us. When our spiritual eyes are shut and sleepy, we can much more easily sin. We need to be alert to apathy and indifference. <clears throat> Jesus, in his letter to the church in Sardis, he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. And because of the nature of apathy and indifference, these are very sins that are hard to notice sometimes. We can just kind of slide into them and be very insensitive and not alert to the dangers that they can lead to. For example, the Church of Sardis. And to, for us to reject and neglect God's word is to disregard it and treat it as meaning nothing. We can do that if we're not into the word and we're not growing in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we read about in, in Second Peter today. And soon, if we allow ourselves to slide into apathy and indifference, we can't remember what we received and heard. And the Lord's way of living becomes more vague and indifference. And indefinite, I'm sorry. And how many times are we told to remember, remember? If we don't, God will chasten us in love to get us back in the track. If we don't, remember. If we become indifferent, we need to begin to keep the word. We need to repent and get back to where we once were. We need to be alert to false teachers. That's more and more prevalent than ever today. Paul gives Timothy the warning. He gives the Ephesian elders. Peter describes false teachers in detail so Christians would recognize their characteristics and methods. The greatest sin of Christ rejectors and the most damaging word of Satan is misrepresentation of the truth and its consequent deception. Nothing is more wicked 
than for someone to claim to speak for God to the salvation of souls when reality speaks for Satan to the damnation of souls. Heresies, heresies are often self-designed religious lies which lead to division and faction. The word for destructive means damnation. And if you want to read a couple of good descriptions of false teachers, uh, you can read about it in the Peter, Peter's epistle in the epistle of Jude. The bottom line is this. <clears throat> know the truth and you will not be hoodwinked by false teaching. Now, of course, be alert in prayer. This is a positive. In Ephesians 6, 18, praying in the Spirit with all perseverance and supplication, watching in that regard with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is a positive to watch for that we might be strengthened. Jesus has stated the need to pray, to watch and pray, to escape temptation. Prayer strengthens us in God's way just as it protects us against Satan's way. And it's not just a, a random ritual, but it's the very heartbeat of our life. And if we're not people of prayer and praying in the spirit and looking to Jesus, uh, we're more susceptible to falling and not being alert. And then there's the second coming of the Lord. We're to be alert for the second coming of the Lord. We need to be watching for the Lord's return. How, when's the last time you thought about it? What if Jesus comes today? Have you ever thought about that? He might. Two major motives for living faithfully for Christ are remembering what he did for on the cross and looking forward to his return. We don't know when, so we need always to be ready for when Christ does return. And of course, being saved, knowing Christ as your personal Savior and Lord is the primary need. And for the believer, it's living a holy and godly life. And we're told in Peter that that will even hasten the coming of the Lord. And I guess one of the things we were reminded of back when we were kids, we weren't children once, you know, even though we're this old. <clears throat> Would you want to be doing that when the Lord came back? <laughs> One of the motives for holy conduct and godliness is expectation. And hastening here means not that it's going to speed up God's program. It means eagerly desiring that something will happen. Christians, we don't have to fear the future day of God, but we eagerly hope for it and look for it. Those are a few things we need to be alert about in our lives. We also need to be firm, stand firm in the faith. <clears throat> We're told this in a number of places. But if you're going to stand firm in the faith, you've got to first be firm 
in the faith yourself. I always remember the words of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit, sit in the seat of the scornful. <clears throat> that kind of describes your whole lifestyle. It's done it. But this man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. A tree puts out roots, solid roots, that are solid and can't, hard to move. <clears throat> We're living in one of the places in our first church and we had a, we had a lilac. It had grown to almost the size of a tree right beside the house going right down by the, the basement wall. And we couldn't get it out because it had almost started digging in through the wall. So we had to get a, one of our farmers with a tractor and he got, chats the chain to that root and pulled it out. <clears throat> That's the kind of rooting we needed in our faith. We need to be firm in our faith, rooted. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and build up in the faith. Established in the faith. Paul says in Colossians 2.6. And we need to stand firm. I want to tell you about the there's a lot of people in the Bible that stood form. Daniel, Joseph, <coughs> Stephen, Paul. You can name many others. But Jeremiah 35 talks about the Rechabites. Anybody here know who the Rechabites are? <coughs> well, there was a man named Jehonadab. <coughs> and he helped Jehu rid Israel of the Baal Worship. You know Jehu, he was the guy that was the, the speeder in the chariot. But this was a group of people, the Rechabites, who stood out in their day with a different set of values. They're only mentioned in one chapter in the Bible, and that's Jeremiah 35, and a couple of times in 2 Kings 10. And they were presented in contrast to the majority of the people of Judah. The people of Judah were dishonoring God. They were disobeying his laws. They were, uh, they were intermarrying with the nations around them. But the Rechabites honored their father by obeying his command. <clears throat> Jehonadab had said some 200 years before Jeremiah's time, don't ever drink strong wine. Don't build houses, live in tents, and a few other things. Don't sow or plant vineyards. And if they commanded, followed these commands, they would live long. So Jeremiah was told by God to invite the Rechabites into the temple in Jerusalem because they had to move into Jerusalem because of the Babylonians sweeping through the land. And God was giving these people a test. He was giving the Rechabites a test, but he was also giving a, an object lesson to the, 
his people. He said, invite me to the temple and offer them some wine. Well, this was an action sermon. To give Jeremiah an opportunity to tell the leaders of Judah how unfaithful they'd been to God. It wasn't wrong for them to drink wine. But they'd made a commitment that they wouldn't. And when they were offered this wine by the great prophet of God, they refused it. Since we can't do that. We have committed ourselves some 200 years ago and our families that we would never, never break that covenant. And God promised them long life. <clears throat> Next time you're reading through Jeremiah, remember the Rechabites. We need to be watching for the Lord's return and we need to be firm in our faith and stand firm for our faith. We're to fight the good fight. We're to be strong. And it says here next to act like men. <laughs> this really means be mature. Have mature courage, have a sense of control, confidence, and courage that an immature, childish person doesn't have. And of course, maturity in 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the marks of love. I don't know you, about you, but I often struggle with how to love as Christ did. See, love strives for maturity in all good things, in doctrine, in spiritual insight, in emotional stability and control, in personal relationships, in moral purity and all the fruit of the Spirit. And above all, we should grow in grace in the knowledge of our Savior and Jesus Christ. And following on in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, Speaking the truth in love, we will, in all things, grow up in him who is the head, that is Christ. How does the believer grow? By craving pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word. So that by it we, we may grow up. <clears throat> now in a couple of places to the Corinthians and the Hebrews, we see the writer saying, but all we can do is feed you milk you're not ready you haven't matured you haven't gone you can't even handle meat so we don't crave spiritual meal to stay as babies we 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 crave it so that we'll grow and be able to take in the meat of the word as well as the milk of the word we need to be mature and be strong and our strength is in the Lord Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul said to Timothy. And the psalmist said, it is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. And Paul, when he had the thorn in the flesh, discovered that God's grace was sufficient for him and his strength was made perfect in weakness. 
we must remember that Christ is the supreme source of our strength and be strong in him and be loving. Do everything in love. The most comprehensive principle for power, for living, for living as Christ wants us to as men of God, without love, all other elements make us crusty and militant and hard. That's not just men, that's women and young people too. Without love, 1 Corinthians 13, without love, what we do is like a symbols that are clanging and banging. Without love, we can have all kinds of knowledge and faith. It all means nothing. We can give our bodies to be burned. We can give everything that we have to the poor, but without love, it means nothing. See, love complements and balances everything. It's a beautiful, softening characteristic to life. It keeps our firmness from being hardness. It keeps our strength from being domineering. It keeps our maturity gentle and considerate. It keeps our right doctrine from becoming obstinate dogmatism. And it keeps our right living from becoming smug self-righteousness. Love is what we need the most. Peter said, above all, love each other deeply, fervently, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love, like spiritual strength, comes from the Lord. We are to love because love is from the Lord, from God, who is love. And when we love as Christ loved us, we show we are born of God and know him. We are able to love because he first loved us. So I invite every one of you to make a fresh commitment to follow this directive from God's word. Be alert to those things around you who can draw you away from your faith in the Lord. Stand firm in your faith, but make sure you are firm in the faith first. Act like mature believers. Be growing in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And be strong in Christ. Don't depend on your own strength. Depend on his strength. He's the all-powerful, almighty God. And do everything in love. Father, we thank you for this, this great exhortation from the Apostle Paul. Help us to take it into our hearts and lives and put it into practice. Help us to change the things in our lives. And Lord, help me to change things in my life so that I can follow through on these exhortations the glory of your name. Amen.